Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. And my name is Tim Clare, author, dad now, apparently, and a podcast presenter, which I suppose you could guess that uh, that last part by the context in which you're hearing me. Nonetheless, uh, Death of a Thousand Cuts is a show for writers and readers about writing and reading and all the wonderful things about stories and the production thereof. Today, I am... Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> and I'm, I'm usually excited, but I am extra excited today because um, I'm talking to Dr. Tim Pitchell, uh, who is uh is works for the uh, procrastination research group now i'm gonna we're gonna get into exactly what that is in just a moment but first of all i'd just like to say welcome and thank you so much for joining me uh tim how are you i'm very well tim and it's a pleasure to join you today oh, um so first of all um and and you know this will be this is a sort of crushingly conventional opening to what we're going to talk about but i think we're going to talk about procrastination today and it's by far it's by far I get you know hundreds of letters from listeners emails telling me about things they'd like me to talk about on the show things that we discuss and procrastination is head and shoulders uh the number one thing I get more letters about that than every other topic uh, in writing and creativity combined so my first question to you that's so that's one of the re- and I'm a writer myself so those are the reasons I'm interested in procrastination. What got you interested in procrastination? Well, when I was doing my doctoral studies, which began in the 80s and stretched into the 90s, um, I was studying other doctoral students and their personal projects and their goals. And I was trying to predict uh, both at the individual level and then at the aggregate level, how our goal pursuit affected our well-being. And especially in the interviews and the qualitative part of my research, it became painfully obvious that procrastination was a huge issue. I remember meeting one young woman who was, she was 30 years old. She was completing her PhD in political science, and she already had two master's degree and a law degree. And yet she'd say by 6.30 in the morning, she was paralyzed with her anxiety. And procrastination became a theme for all of these students that I was speaking with. And then when I went and did the quantitative part of things, I realized that when I put that variable into any model, it predicted a great deal of well-being. So quite literally, when I finished defending my doctoral thesis, my doctoral dissertation, my external examiner asked, so what's next, Tim? And I said, I'm going to stop studying what people are doing. And instead, I'm going to start studying what people say they're going to do and don't do, because (laughs) that's the story of our well-being or a good portion of it. I, it's so it's so fascinating to me. But before we go any further, one thing I think that would be useful to sort of set down as a um, as a kind of uh, a basis for all the discussion that's going to come, and it might seem an obvious question, but but what is procrastination? What's your working definition of it? Just so we make sure we've got we've defined our terms a little bit. That's a great question, Tim. I'm glad we're starting there. Uh, procrastination is a form of delay. And it's a voluntary delay of an intended act. It's not just putting things off. Like I, if, you, if we put this interview off, off, for example, for quite a few weeks, but it wasn't that we planned on doing it earlier and then we delayed it. It was that this is when it would work. So that's a very purposeful delay. But procrastination is a form of delay that's it's a voluntary delay of an intended act 
despite the expectation that you're probably going to be worse off for the delay. Imagine that today, although we had an intention to do this podcast together, that uh, one of our family members was ill. Uh, like you, I'm a Mr. Mom. I'm a very uh, busy dad. And if one of my children was sick, I might have had to contact you and say, look, I, I can't do this today. We're going to have to delay it. Well, you wouldn't impugn me with the word procrastination. It's really kind of an inevitable delay in our lives. So I want to just make sure that all your listeners know that procrastination is a voluntary delay, you're doing it on your own, of an intended act, despite that nagging awareness that this is not a good idea. I'm probably going to be worse off. And I'm saying probably because the world's not a perfect place. And every once in a while, we will procrastinate and it actually pays off. But we hold on to those like gold because then we use them to justify all our other unnecessary and and um, culpable delay. So that's key. And I think that uh, I have a colleague at uh, Utrecht University in the Netherlands that he, he calls procrastination un, uh, culpably unwarranted delay. So that's another quick definition, culpably unwarranted delay. So there's a sense of responsibility and that's so interesting, your use of voluntary, that procrastination is a choice because for so many of us, kind of doesn't it doesn't a lot of people wouldn't don't see it as a choice or it doesn't align with what they want right that's the kind of maddening confusing slippery thing about it yes and, and we might, we might as well just jump there right? that you know procrastination becomes a habit and and really the the main point main takeaway i think from today at least in terms of understanding procrastination is that we need to understand it's not a time management issue, it's an emotion management issue. And so we use avoidance to regulate our emotions. So if we're fearful or resentful or bored or frustrated, any of these negative emotions related to a task, we don't want to have those now. And so we, f we quickly learn, even as children, avoid the task, avoid the emotion, at least in the short term, but that's the problem with procrastination. It comes back to bite us on the butt. And so what happens then is like anything in our lives, any strategy, it gets rewarded. It's called negative reinforcement because we're taking away a negative stimulus. Just like, let me just back up from that for a second. Imagine that it's raining and you're outside. If you put up an umbrella, it gets rid of the rain, which is the negative stimulus. So that's why it's called negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is not punishment. But in the case of procrastination, what happens is that I use the avoidance to feel better now. And that's really wickedly reinforcing. And so that's why we continue to do it. Now, in the long run, we pay. But I, I can understand where a lot of listeners will say, well, I don't feel like it's voluntary. I don't feel like I have a choice. Well, that's because habits die hard. And when you have a strong go-to habit of avoidance, then it's going to feel like you can do no other. That's not the case, though. You are making a choice. So it's so it why do you think it is and i you know i I'll, I'll ask you in a second about the actual specific research you've got into this but just do you have any any thoughts about why writers might particularly i don't actually know that they are peculiarly um susceptible to procrastination but i know that it's a constant through almost everyone i interview every professional author i talk to who have real struggles what do you think it is about writing say a novel that makes it um a, 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 an area where one might be vulnerable to procrastination 
Well, there's a few things going on, but let me just preface my remarks by saying that not all writers are there. I do hear from a lot of writers and, and, and journalists and lawyers, and I consult with lots of people. Uh, and there is the nature of the task, and I'm going to come to that. But those people who treat their writing uh, like a job, <laughs> which it is, uh, by showing up and having a regular routine, don't say that at all. In fact, we can come back to that and some other sources that people might consider reading. But what makes writing uh, particularly problematic are two things. First, it's human nature to discount future rewards. And so the reward for writing is a long ways away and a lot of uncertainty around it. Like, will it even sell? Like, not only is finishing the piece quite a ways away, but any reward attached to it is a long ways away. And when we discount future rewards, then they become things that we don't feel any pressing need to act on. But there's also something called intransitive preference structures. Now, I need this sounds complicated, but it's not. In, we, we learned in school what transitive preference structures are. That is the notion that if B is greater than A and C is greater than B, then everyone quickly in their head said, yeah, well, that means C is greater than A. Good. But an intransitive preference structure works this way. With intransitive preference structures, I say to myself, oh, on Monday, I feel more like doing it on Tuesday. And then Tuesday comes, no, I feel more like doing it on Wednesday. And then Thursday comes, oh, I wish I'd started Monday. There's an intransitive nature to that. We are, as most behavioral economists will tell us now, we are predictably irrational. And the last piece that really sets us up for failure here, it's much like trying when you're going to, uh, let's say you're going to quit a bad habit like smoking or drinking too much, or you want to start a new habit, uh, eating more uh, nutritional foods. Well, the situation is that certainly it can wait one more day. One more cigarette is not going to kill me. I'm not going to land in my grave. And if I don't eat my salad today, I'm not necessarily going to get sick. So it's easy to put it off one more day quite rationally. So you put all those three together and you've got a perfect storm with something that is temporarily discounted, that I would prefer to do it tomorrow, and not writing today isn't going to destroy my novel because it's a marathon, not, not a sprint. And so we, the situation there being quite... Uh, poorly defined and driven internally sets you up for making these bad choices. When you describe it like that, there's not anything there that doesn't feel... I feel I feel so... <laughs> I feel so called out because every single thinking pattern that you're mentioning is ones that I've had and and it's funny because people will say it... I think it's people trying to be helpful will sometimes say things like oh maybe you're just not in the mood today you know maybe just put, maybe just wait until you feel like doing it you don't want to force it uh taking a day off today isn't going to make a difference you know in the long and all of those things you're right are technically true it's just the cumulative impact of them which is so insidious that's right because if you make that decision today Tomorrow is not much different than today. But I love the comment about being in the mood. You know, social psychologists showed us a long time ago that attitudes don't typically drive behaviors, or at least they don't always drive behaviors. Behaviors actually lead to attitudes. And it's the same thing with motivation. That It's not that we're motivated and then we act. Actually, just a little bit of action primes the pump for motivation. And for me, that's the secret. And I hope at some point we'll get to, you know, how do I get past that? barrier that I'm feeling, an insurmountable barrier to just to get started. 
But getting started is a game changer, uh, particularly in terms of not only making progress, but even looking at ourselves. I know that so many people have so much deep self-doubt about, I say I'm an author, but I'm not writing. I don't even feel I can write. And a piece of me doesn't even want to write. What the heck is wrong with me? But as soon as you get started, you realize, no, I am a writer. And in fact, I'm loving this. But that's even true about exercise. Imagine you come home and you say to yourself, well, I, I should, I've made a promise to uh, ride my exercise bike. Ugh, I, I don't feel like it. And we start to make the excuses, I'm way too tired and I've had a bad day. And, and, but once we get on it, if we can just convince ourselves to get on it, and I'll make, talk a little bit more about how to do that, we get our legs moving. Now, here comes the predictably irrational part of being a human being. We go from not thinking we could do it at all to thinking that we belong in the Tour de France, that we're somehow <laughs> some elite athlete. And we kind of oscillate between these two, one kind of despair and the other kind of mania. And that is part of the human condition as well. And we have to accept that. We, as the Buddhists would say, we have monkey mind, lots of stuff going on in there. And some of it we shouldn't be paying attention to. Hmm. Now, I, I'm, I, that is... So again, I'm like I'm I'm just sitting here nodding, um, with a slight with a, that slight guilt of like, oh gosh, I I I feel like you've been, you know, what I feel like I've been watched. It's so so true. Now, just before we get on to the how, because I, I that's a tantalising and kind of like really important part of all this, because obviously just diagnosing it would be very interesting and fascinating and tragically revealing but um wouldn't necessarily help us unless there are ways out of it but before we go into that i just wondered you, there are these mindsets that people fi find themselves falling into uh these little thought uh, mistakes that you're talking about um but are, i wonder if certain types of people are particularly susceptible to that for example um i have a, an anxiety disorder i um i'm a particularly sort of anxious person and given to anxiety and i've also just finished my second novel and i struggled hugely with procrastination procrastination which i didn't experience quite so much in my first novel in fact and i just wonder you know are there certain mind states or certain personality types or certain uh mental uh, trains of thought or ways of thinking, certain types of people who are particularly procrastination prone? Yes, there are. In fact, you and I don't just share the name Tim, but we also probably share an overly active amygdala. And that's a part of our limbic system, a very evolutionary old part of the brain that really is responsible for encoding emotions. The amygdala in particular is known as that flight or fight part of the brain that really uh, gets activated around processing information that's related to uh, fear and anxiety. And in personality psychology, we would say, you know, these are people that you might def define as emotionally unstable or the other word that's used that has too much con negative connotations about is neuroticism. In other words, we're prone to anxiety, social, uh, very being self-conscious, uh, depressive thoughts, that sort of thing. And the most interesting thing for me is that just this past year, some German colleagues published a paper on their research where they looked at functional magnetic resonance images of brains of procrastinators and non-procrastinators. And sure enough, they found that procrastinators have larger amygdalae and different connections to the prefrontal cortex. Now, the prefrontal cortex 
Evolutionarily, is a newer part of the brain. It matures later in, a, in a, a children into adulthood. Like it's not until about 25 that most adults have a fully matured this part of the brain and the prefrontal that cortex. That late? Yeah, that late. And so, you know, one of the things that parents lament all the time is my kids procrastinate. I say, yeah, it's a bit developmental, you know, that they're, uh, they're, they're still working on developing these executive functions of uh, in, inhibition of impulses and uh, planfulness and that sort of thing. So we really have to help kids more. But, you know, we, those of us who are anxious, I remember I said it's not a time management problem, this procrastination thing. It's an emotion regulation thing. So if we're having quite intense emotions, uh, then we have to be much more strategic so as not to misregulate ourselves. And I said not underregulate. It's not like we have to put more willpower to this because willpower just won't do it most of the time. It's that we have to recognize that I think that this, this avoidance today is going to make me feel better. That's my belief. But it's a misguided belief. It's a misregulation because it doesn't make me feel better. It actually makes me feel worse. It's a bit like thinking, if I just have two more cookies, I'll feel better. Or if I have another drink, I'll feel better. These are all self-regulation problems around misregulation of emotion. We think these things will make us feel better. That's a breakthrough for many of us to realize, this is actually not going to make me feel better. But then we need strategies to lay on top of that. So to answer your question again really specifically, absolutely, if we are prone to anxiety, then we have to cope with that anxiety. And one of the things that procrastination can provide is a coping mechanism, although misguided. There are other traits that are related to procrastination. If you're not a very organized or dutiful person, it's a called a major personality trait called conscientiousness. If you're not very conscientious, you're more prone to procrastinate. And conscientiousness really is just how, how uh, strong is that prefrontal cortex, right? How much executive function do you have? Are you very dutiful, planful, and self-disciplined? And of course, the opposite of that too, we find with research is that if you're really impulsive, you're more likely to procrastinate because you're out of here. The moment you start feeling lousy, you go, goodbye, I'm gone. Hmm. Hmm. And then finally, the last trait I'd bring up to the table is perfectionism, but really important here. There's more than one flavor of perfectionist. If you're a self-oriented perfectionist who just wants to write a good novel because you want to write a good novel, you're, you're not more prone to procrastination. It's the socially prescribed perfectionist or someone who has, uh, you could say, perfectionistic concerns, usually because they've internalized the unrealistic expectations of others. These are people who are more likely to procrastinate because they have this terrible little dialogue going on inside their heads again. You're not good enough. You're going to fail. That sort of thing. So again, we come back full circle to this. It's about managing our emotions. In the case of uh, perfectionistic concerns, these thoughts precipitate these negative emotions and you think, I don't want these emotions, which is a pretty normal thing to say, I don't want to feel like this. That's so profound. I, I feel like I'm having some real aha moments listening to you here because I definitely have uh, that tendency to I just you know in preparation for this one of the things I did in preparation for this is I sat down and did some writing this morning just to listen to that internal monologue and see how I managed my time and immediately when I started writing this uh 
this kind of voice in my head, it's kind of a bit like Statler and Waldorf at the, the Muppets, right? Like these two kind of like hecklers up in the uh, in the opera box of my mind, kind of jeering as I start to write and saying and imagining critical responses, imagining, you know, my agent and editor's responses. Oh, no, Tim, this will never do. And a lot of it feels like uh, like kind of damage limitation or trying to see things that are going to wrong and anticipate them almost before they happen. Uh, they're almost like kind of looking out for threats. Does, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Is that, is that a kind of perfectionism? It is. And also when you got to that word threat, you've gone full circle back to the amygdala. Like the, it's, you've, so much is being encoded in relation to threat and not challenge. As soon as it becomes a threat, then avoidance, fight or flight, becomes activated and so no, we're not able to function very well our body's preparing for battle or for fleeing not for creativity we're completely in the wrong place at that point so absolutely all those all those things are going on if that's what you're experiencing in your body but it, in a very profound sense too it raises an issue for me that i think about procrastination as a deeply existential thing because in a sense it's not getting on with life itself if I have this sense that I'm a writer or an author, my agency has to be that that's who I am and I'm willing to have the courage. Well, as Paul Tillich wrote in a profound book in the 50s, the courage to be. And so at some level, as I, I can layer all this other stuff about the neurophysiology perhaps or uh, coping and emotions. But at the highest level, I would say in some ways it's not getting the sense that this is my life am I going to make something of it, right? Without it being, some, no, I'm saying it that way. Some people then just crumble again because what do you mean? It's, but it is, it's like time is the one thing, Tim, that you and I have in our lives. It's a non-renewable resource. We don't know, we can't make more of it and we don't even know how much we're going to get. And that's probably why in every major world religion, there's some notion of sloth as a sin. And so we, we really can't waste that. And so when, when we, f we struggle to say, well, I'm af afraid to write, that inner dialogue, for example, part of shaking that off is saying, th there's no other time. This is the time to write. <sighs> so this is, this is where I, th I feel like we're just creeping up on the, the moment to strike. And I am ironically kind of putting it off. But you've talked about, you know, the uh, overactive amygdala you've talked about you know cho uh, choosing these having these intransitive preference structures you've talked about uh our choosing to put off something or almost make make ourselves feel better by feeling briefly less by doing something that distracts us these are all uh failed uh coping strategies or very short-termist coping strategies for emotion management and they are they what they produce is procrastination which in the long term makes us feel worse which means we've got more emotional baggage to and 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 stress to deal with which then and so on and so forth in this kind of vicious spiral so here's the biggest question of all like through your research how how can we beat it are there uh, whether they're strategies or environmental changes or just self-talk we can do I, and I know you've touched on some of this already but um what are some moves that we can start to apply you know today that can help us overcome procrastination because on the other side of it are so many wonderful things and I know that rationally you know that everyone listening knows that theoretically there are these wonderful things on the other side of it 
and and yet we and yet we stop and i would just say like i know we make jokes about procrastination i know in the writing community it's always like oh, oh, oh i'm skiving off my work but privately and actually on the interviews i've done here with some authors their struggles to write their books when they've really been in the pit of procrastination have made them profoundly unhappy very depressed and it's really damaged the quality of their life so you know this is a big important thing yeah, it certainly is and let me begin by saying that was a marvelous summary you're a good listener and so i think you captured some of the key ideas there the, our last 15 minutes of conversation so i do have a couple strategies and i think the first one is a real game changer and it can make a difference in your life right now if you want it to but we have to start with the, the fact that you summarized well it's about emotions so every cell in your body is screaming, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. I can't face it. I just want to run away. Well, I joked about, I, not necessarily a joke, I did speak to the idea that the Buddhists call this monkey mind. Psychologists will tell you that we can't suppress our emotions. Just like the Buddhists will say, yeah, you can't get rid of the monkey. Yeah. And one uh, Buddhist monk that I saw interviewed just said it so beautifully you got to give the monkey something to do. And, mm. and psychologists will say the same thing. You can't suppress these emotions. So what are you going to give the monkey to do? And this is my go-to. I use it every day. Tim, just before we started our, our uh, interview today, I'd, done, I'd gotten my children off to school. I fed my horses, played with my dogs, came in. And now I'm at this precipice point. Now I'm on my own personal schedule. It's time to work. Not for half a second that I want to, Tim. <laughs> But I have it in my schedule what mm -hmm. I needed to do. And so, and, and this is what I do every day, multiple times a day, to be the person that I want to be. This is crucial, right? If, if, it's that, if it means you're, that's you're a writer, or for me, it's I'm a professor. I had this task. Now, it would be easy to wiggle out of it, you know. Oh, it'd only take me a minute to clean up the kitchen more. It'd only take me a minute. No, that, as soon as I say it will only take a minute, I'm going down the rabbit hole. Everyone should recognize that. And maybe we can even come back to that. But the game changer for me is this simple statement. I could be having all sorts of emotions, and some of them I'm not even completely aware of. I'm not even sure why I don't feel like doing the task, because it's not even that arduous. I just don't want to do it. And I say to myself, what's the next action? That's it. What's the next action? That's the bare bones statement. But I typically add this. What's the next action if I was to do this task, even though I don't want to, or even though I, don't, I won't, because you're, I don't have to put myself in the deep end quite yet. And the action might be, I need to open my laptop and open the email I got from the center yesterday to find the link to the booking website. I had to book some exams for some students. I thought, well, I can certainly open my laptop and look at that email. And now I'm started. You see, my, my main mantra is just get started, but I've had so many people over the years say, Tim, if I could just get started, I wouldn't have a procrastination problem. That's not very helpful. So I've really boiled it down to something that I've borrowed from uh, the author of um, Getting Things Done, David Allen. He's written lots of interesting books like Ready for Anything. And he's focused very much on this notion of what's the next action, because he'll say, we don't do projects we do actions, and even a book is that way, right? We don't write books, we write words, we write sentences. And so what's the next action? You're trying to set the threshold for your action as low as possible, so you just shake your head and say, of course I could do that, as opposed to saying, I'm gonna write my book. That is so broad. And that brings me to my next point. Psychologists have done research to show that when we think about things in the abstract, they seem to belong to tomorrow. 
It's just the way our brains work. But when we think about things concretely, they have a sense of urgency to them. They belong to today. So the little trick you play there, which is in what's the next action, is that you're making something very concrete. And concrete things belong to the moment. But when you put them in the abstract, like I'm working on a novel, well, that doesn't belong today. Manana, right? And, all, and, you, and you want that justification. So to reiterate, because this is really crucial, every single day I face tasks, and some of them are writing tasks because I also write. I, I don't feel like it, even though my whole being is, I'm a writer, I'm a professor, I'm a lecturer. But at that moment, I don't know what else I want to do, but I can tell you I don't want to do this. So I don't focus on the what I want to do or how I'm feeling. I say, what's the next action? And in doing that, I prime the pump and it's a game changer. And I've seen that in our research too. I mean, I could go on to tell you about studies, but it would suffice to say that we've seen that when people get started, it changes the way they see the task and it changes the way they see themselves. What's the next action? I think it's it's interesting as you were saying that that idea that you would say uh you know i'm i'm gonna what are you doing this weekend i'm gonna write my book it's a bit like you're saying what are you gonna do this weekend uh i'm gonna eat and then you list the kind of volume of food you'd need to eat to sustain you for a year it's like you're trying to eat all your dinners at once um and 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 write my book is 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 a fundamentally unexecutable command but yeah it's 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 you i think there's some mismatch between going i'm going to sit down and write my novel and part of your mind that understands that is not that is not an action that can then be that you can then execute because it's too big and it has too many constituent parts and actually any of the things you're doing you know, like sitting down and writing a word, don't feel like they're fulfilling that brief, uh, which creates anxiety, which then makes you feel like, oh, I'm feeling anxiety. How can I stop this feeling? It's it's one of, you know what, it, it, talking about this, it makes me realise one of the things that has made me feel least like a writer sometimes has been tr- sitting down and starting to write because that's the point where all, and actually if you don't write, you can maintain these quite pleasant sort of fantasies about writing that aren't to do with the business of getting words down and yet and yet nothing matches the pleasure of actually creating and that kind of real focus and losing yourself in creating words but in a way all that idea of I'm 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 in the process of writing a novel now has to kind of go you have to be going I'm in the process of finding out what this character does next yeah, and you know, it's a, a bit like there's no greater pleasure that, for an athlete than to actually be running or whatever sport, but there's also a great deal of effort that is required, and it's easy for you to think about oh, all that effort, and instead, if it's what's the next action, I need to put on my shoes and get out the door, well, then you've started, and of course, as I said earlier, we're so predictably irrational that later on, then we think we could run forever, which we can't, or write mm-hmm. forever, and so the same thing happens. There is no better feeling than actual that process of creation. But there's also, uh, it takes so much effort, you know, as writers will joke, yeah, it's, writing's easy, you just bleed on the page. <laughs> and, and so you, you, you know that deep down, it is going to take a tremendous amount of effort and even angst to uh, th- think through uh, the character or uh, find the words to express yourself. But there is no greater reward. It's a eudaimonic reward. It's the reward we get from 
from being and from doing as opposed to the hedonic reward, which is that, that self-indulgent reward. And, and that doesn't give us very much lasting satisfaction. On my lap right now, when we began our discussion, I pulled it off the shelf because it's right next to me, is a book by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art. Are you familiar with it? Yes, I am. Yeah, I've read it. I think I've got it on my shelf somewhere here, actually. Yeah, and I think every writer should read it, at least the first half. I'm, I'm not, you know, we all take uh, react differently to writers, but this first half uh, on just resistance and the nature of resistance and how it comes in so many different forms speaks, it almost dances with the kind of research we've done. So he's writing from personal experience, but what we experience in writing is this experience of resistance, and I think he describes that so well. But, you know, then we drill it back down to the psychological perspective, which, you know, either neurophysiologically or through self-report, and we're getting this notion of coping and an overactive limbic system and learning how to give the monkey something to do. Now, you've talked about the brains of... I just wanted to pick up on something. You talked about the brains of procrastinators being different um, from the brains of non-procrastinators. Now, you're talking about us taking behaviours that might make us less... Uh, might would, would result in our uh, procrastinating less. Do you... Can you speak at all about... But are those brains... Um, I guess I'm, I'm looking for the arrow of causality here, really. Are those brains the developed as the result are they reinforced are those pathways exist because of procrastination or are they what gives one the propensity to procrastinate in the first place and are we sort of stuck with them oh good thank you for going there because you know i could think people could be left with the idea that well it's not my fault my brain's just like that um, <laughs> it's always nature via nurture it's not nature versus nurture but the two are always working together so some of us come into the world uh, at a disadvantage, I might argue, that we just have an overly active limbic system. And so we have a little bit more to cope with. So there's nature in there, but the nurture component is certainly there too, that you've started to encode fearfulness in relation to things, and then you need to cope with that, and you use avoidance as one of your go-to strategies. So there's learning involved too, nature and nurture. But biology is not destiny. That's really important to understand. First of all, even though I may have a propensity for something, doesn't mean that I have to do that. And we, and we see that in everyday lives. We don't act on every motivation we feel in our bodies. If we did, we'd probably end up in prison. Mm -hmm. but the, the thing, too, is that there's some interesting research that I wrote about in a recent blog post. And people can find these blog posts at procrastination.ca. It's easy to find my research. Just remember it's .ca for Canada, procrastination.ca. But I was commenting on my German colleagues' research for the BBC, in fact. And we know from research that came out of the University of Pittsburgh a few years ago now that, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of Taryn as the uh, researcher's name, that even eight weeks of mindfulness meditation served to shrink the amygdala and change the connections to the prefrontal cortex. So brains are plastic, and what fires together, wires together. So if you're hmm. always coping by avoiding, well, that you're creating this habit, and that's why you'll feel like, I can't do any other. That doesn't feel voluntary to me. Well, in a sense, it's not, because you've got this wicked pattern in your life. But you can change it. And why mindfulness... Uh, works on the one hand neurophysiologically we see these changes but on the other hand what it is is simply that you're learning to direct your attention to where you want your attention 
And so I'm going to take my attention away from my negative emotions and over to the next action. I'm going to take my attention away from some temptation just to the blank screen in front of me. So yes, it's, biology is not destiny. If we do come into the world with different uh, liabilities or resilience factors, uh, but we can continue to be the person we want to be whether we have these risk factors or not. I think that's a really that's really good for people to hear because I know some people will listen to this. I, I know now some people will be listening and they'll feel really inspired by what you've been saying and they'll go away very fired up to to write and they will be dismayed to find some of these the habit energy of these things, some of these pathways are still there. And it's interesting to hear that it, perhaps it's worth our remembering that it's like kind of turning a big ocean liner around and there's going to be some time. Um, and by just an every effort we make towards it is, you know, it's putting pennies into the piggy bank and slowly that will build up. I, I guess like the work itself, you know, the work on not procrastinating will slowly build itself up and um, reinforce itself over time. Absolutely. And, you know, we did a study, only one, but it's very provocative on self-forgiveness and procrastination. Uh, and it's probably a good place even to draw our conversation to a close because it's really important to remember, as you've noticed, that these habits are, are going to be a, a big pull on us and we're going to fall back into our habits and we're going to feel badly about it. And when we did this study, I did it with a colleague of mine here at Carleton University. And I said, Michael, what's the point? It's going to be forgive and forget. And it wasn't that at all. What we found is that people who forgave themselves for procrastinating, procrastinated less on the next uh, task just the same way. And I said, how does that work? And he said, well, imagine that you and Tim had a transgression against each other. Like you didn't show up for the interview or... Uh, you did something that was offensive. What would be the motivation? Well, we'd want to avoid each other. He said, exactly. Now, what if Tim forgave you for it? What would be the motivation then? Well, it would be approach. He said, yep, we see that in all sorts of research. But with procrastination, the transgression is against the self. So unless you forgive yourself, what's the motivation? It's continued avoidance. So you can leave uh, the listening to this podcast today enthusiastic make some effort, feel some success. The next day your old habit shows up and it's going to, and you, you don't live up to your expectations. And if you don't forgive yourself, you're more likely just to add to that guilt and uh, even more stimulate those feelings of anxiety and self-blame. Self-blame is a huge part of the procrastination habit, and we have to be able to let go. So self-compassion and self-forgiveness are really big part in this self-change process that you described like the ocean liner. Tim, thank you so, so much for your time uh, today. And thank you for all giving us all the, you know, an insight into some of the uh, benefits and of all your research you've done. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I, it's nice to join your community here and talk about something that's near and dear to all our hearts is living the life we want to live, being creative in the way we want to be creative and not being our own worst enemy. I think that's what bugs us most. And as you said, you know, so many writers really get depressed. And, and I see that in the lives of students as well, that the stress is real because now they're behind the eight ball. You've, you've taken the advance on your book and you haven't been writing. And now you're feeling you got to produce so much and you're hating yourself for putting yourself here again. But change is truly possible. Uh, and it's done in the moment. 
I want to remind everyone that I, when I came in from doing my chores this morning, I was at a choice point. Am I going to do what was on my calendar? Because I think time management is necessary but not sufficient. I had a plan, but my body was saying, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. And then I had to just gently but firmly move my attention to what's the next action. And it's a game changer if you, if you try it. Okay, Tim. Well, um, thanks very much. And everyone listening, um, I'll put a link to um, procrastination.ca, which you can just type into your t- to your bar if you want. But otherwise, I'll put links to that in the um, in the show notes of today's show. So if you want to, just click on the show, look in the show notes, and there'll be a link that you can click through to read some of Tim's blogs, his research, and uh, find out a little bit more for yourselves. Okay, Tim. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Tim. Nice to meet you, if only virtually here. Hmm. And um, everyone this week, have a lovely week of writing.